Good morning. Ohayo gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys just to worship our Lord. I love just singing his praises together. And it's something powerful about when the body of Christ just gathers together in, in worship and in unity. It's powerful and uh, just a, such a blessing. Uh, great, great. Just praise the Lord. Uh, God's good. Last week, we started a new study in our verse-by-verse teaching of the New Testament by doing an introduction and an overview to Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. We looked at a number of background details regarding the writing of this letter, uh, things like uh, who wrote the letter, why he wrote the letter, uh, the timing of the letter. We looked at the details surrounding the formation of the church in Thessalonica and the main theme of this letter that was written to them. We also took just a few minutes to look at Paul's initial greeting to the church in verse 1 of chapter 1. It is the same greeting he used in pretty much all of uh, his other letters. It is a grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul loved to start his letters out this way, reminding people that it is only because of the grace of God that we can have the peace of God. You know, peace with God, uh, was granted to us through faith in Jesus Christ. But the peace of God comes when we finally understand that the gospel really is all about the grace of God, okay? That when we know and we understand the grace of God, uh, how we cannot earn it, we cannot merit it, uh, that is God's favor, Uh, no manner of works uh, that we do will improve our standing before God, then we can finally live in and appreciate the peace of God in our hearts and in our minds. This morning, we're going to continue in our study of the book, getting into the rest of chapter one and what stood out to Paul the most about the church in Thessalonica. In this opening chapter, we're going to read about the amazing work God did in the Thessalonians and through the Thessalonians. Even though Paul didn't have a whole lot of time with them to lay a broad foundation and framework for the church to build upon, we're going to see that what they did receive, it took root, and it brought about an incredible work of God's Spirit. The hope for us this morning is to get through the entirety of chapter 1 and to hopefully even have some time to come to the Lord's table through communion, seeing as how it is the first Sunday of the month, and as our practice as a church is to set aside time on the first Sunday of the month to come to the communion table. So we're going to be doing that today. So without any further delay, let's jump into God's Word. If you haven't done so already, please open up your Bibles, make your way to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Our text this morning is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 2 through 10. And then I'd like to invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read through our text this morning from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's no problem. Just do your best to follow along. Paul continues the beginning of his letter with the following in chapter 1, verse 2. He writes, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. 
and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. The opportunity that we have to open it up, to read it, to have it speak to us, to mold us and shape us. Lord, I pray that as we've opened up our Bibles, that in like manner, that our ears and our uh, hearts and our minds would be open to receive all that your spirit desires to say to us. And so, Lord, we welcome you in this place. We thank you for being here with us. We ask for your spirit's help in leading and guiding in all truth. We pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. It's been said that there is no such thing as a perfect church, and that if you ever come across what you believe to be the perfect church, that you shouldn't join it because as soon as you did, you would spoil it, okay? It would ruin it, okay? The truth of the matter is that there is no such thing as a perfect church, uh, though I like this church uh, pretty fondly, okay? Um, for a perfect church would require perfect people, okay, which you and I are not, okay? We are imperfect people being perfected by the sanctifying work of God's Holy Spirit. It is a work that God will continue to do until the day he calls us home. So there is no such thing as a perfect church, but there are model churches or ideal churches or churches that are exemplary and worthy of our emulation, and it would seem, based upon our reading this morning, that Paul had high regard for this particular church in Thessalonica. Paul was amazed and so thankful to God for the great work God had done and was continuing to do in and through them, so much so that this church became a model for other churches throughout the area to learn from and to follow after. The title of our study this morning is going to be The Model Church. Okay? Last week it was the Thessalonian church, okay? but today it's the model church. The church in Thessalonica was not a perfect church. Okay? They had their issues, some things that they struggled with, and certain doctrinal points that confused them, but they were a model church, okay? a church that other churches heard about and were encouraged to follow after, a church Paul was very proud of and thankful for. As we go through our text this morning, we're going to note why Paul was so thankful for this particular church and what it was that set them apart. For those of you who like to take notes or to outline uh, the text, we're going to break up this text into five small sections, okay? And within each section, we're going to note a number of things that stood out to Paul, things Paul mentioned that made this church the kind of church that we can model ourselves after, and my hope as we go through this text is that the things we note about the church in Thessalonica would be things that are characteristics of the work God is doing here in Iwakuni, Lord. And then if they aren't, that we would look to learn and to grow where we fall short, and that we too may be the kind of church 
that God can use to be uh, and serve as a model for what the church ought to be like today. And so let's dive into the first section of our text this morning, verses 2 through 4, where Paul gives thanks to God for the church in Thessalonica. Verse 2 says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. We'll stop right there. In these verses, Paul writes about how thankful he was to God for the church in Thessalonica and how he was constantly reminded of the amazing work God was doing in and through them. This church was a very young church, a church that didn't have a ton of experience in their newfound faith, and yet they were a church that God was moving mightily through. As Paul went to the Lord in thanksgiving and prayer, he was constantly reminded of four things regarding this church, four things that stood out to Paul and gave reason for him to be thankful. So note them with me. First of all, Paul was thankful to God for their work of faith, okay, their work of faith. During Jesus's earthly ministry, there was a time when the people came to Jesus and they asked him something very important. They asked Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? You see, the people had just been miraculously fed by the Lord, some 5,000 of them, not including women and children. Jesus was doing amazing things. Signs and wonders were with him, and the people wanted to know what they could do in order to be able in order to be able to do the works of God themselves. And so Jesus responded to them in John chapter 6 verse 29 and he said this. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. You see the most important work that we can do as a church is to believe in him whom he sent to believe upon Jesus Christ, whom God the Father sent to us. That is the work that we are all called to do. It is a work of faith. Now, it is very important that we understand that the church in Thessalonica was not saved because of their work of faith. Works do not save us. We are saved by the grace of God through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us. Nonetheless, faith in the Lord will produce works of faith. Okay? They are a natural byproduct of faith. James writes in his epistle that faith by itself, if it does not have works, well, it is dead. Right? And, and we don't want to have a dead faith, right? We want to have a living faith, a, a faith that works. James spoke of how he's able to show his faith by his works, that his works testify of the faith that he has in the Lord. Well, this church in Thessalonica, they were living and operating by a living faith, and it was producing a great work in them, a work of faith that Paul thanked God continually for. But that wasn't all. Paul also thanked God for their labor of love, okay, their labor of love. The word labor here speaks of something of great toil, something that involves wearisome effort. The word love is the Greek word agape, which is a selfless, sacrificial love, the kind of love that God displayed for us when he willingly went to the cross of Calvary and died there for us. 
Putting these two things together, we see that these believers in Thessalonica, they were willing to give of themselves, even if it meant hardship and trials and great toils in order to serve one another. They exhibited a selfless, sacrificial love toward one another through their service of one another. They looked after one another and worked tirelessly to edify and build up one another. You know, this idea of a labor of love can be seen in the kind of love that a mother often has toward her children. Many mothers spend countless hours laboring in the home, doing their best to keep things up, doing their best to care for and provide for their children, especially when the children are young toddlers. The job is a never-ending job, a wearisome and laborious job, but yet a mom seems to always have enough in the tank to take care of their little ones, no matter how challenging the job becomes. You see, moms don't throw in the towel and give up on their children. They continue to serve them. They continue to take care of them. They continue to pick up after them, even after the long and tiring and exhausting day. Why? Well, because of their love. Being a mom is a a labor of love. It is a selfless, sacrificial love that continues to give even when it is hard, even when it is difficult and wearisome, and it brings great toil, and you're at the end of the night, and you feel like you just can't do one more thing, and you're going to drag yourself to bed, and then the kids start screaming and crying again in bed, and you're like, okay, you know, you go, and you you love on that child, right? (laughs) They still love for and care for their children because it is a labor of love, right? Guys, here's your public service announcement, okay? Next Sunday's Mother's Day. Um, make sure you do something special for the moms in your life because truly theirs is a labor of love. Now, these believers in Thessalonica, they loved one another and they served one another. And this is something that should be part of any model church. It should be something that is a description of our church, that we would selflessly, sacrificially serve one another and, and love one another. Well, the third thing that Paul thanked the Lord for was their patience of hope. Their patience of hope. This church was patiently hoping for the return of Jesus Christ. The word patience speaks of a steadfast endurance. These believers were experiencing great persecution because of their newfound faith. But they endured the persecution. They did not give in or surrender to circumstances, but they kept the faith. Because they lived with a hope in Jesus Christ and his coming for them and the eternity that awaited them with him. You know, as we noted in our overview of the book last week, the main theme throughout this this letter is the return of Christ. It is mentioned over and over again throughout this very small letter. Now, the word hope that's used here is not like our English word hope. When we use the word hope, we use it in a certain way that's different from the Greek word hope. In English, the word hope carries with it a wishful type of thinking, right? Something that we long for, but we're not sure will actually take place. It involves doubt. It involves uncertainty, okay? But in the Greek, the word for hope is different. It carries with it a certain expectation, okay? When the word hope is used in the New Testament, it often refers to something that uh, one looks forward to with great confidence, okay? It wasn't that these believers in Thessalonica were hoping for Jesus' return as if they're, you know, 
We're wishing upon a star that this comes to be, but we really don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, we'll knock on wood, cross our fingers, do all these different things that we do because we really have no control over it. We don't know. That wasn't it at all, okay? No, they lived with a certain expectation and a certainty that Jesus Christ was coming back for them. They were eagerly awaiting him. These believers lived each day with the mindset that Christ could be coming back for them, and any time they persevered and they endured all things because they wanted to be ready for when Christ came for them. You know, knowing that Christ is coming back for us and knowing that we have eternity to look forward to, it ought to motivate us and encourage us to live our lives in such a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord, that we would be ready for Him when He does return. The fourth and final thing that Paul mentioned when thanking God for these Thessalonians was their election by God. Okay, their election by God. Now, okay, before some of you start to kind of panic and, and go certain ways, okay, the doctrine of election is one that many like to debate, many like to argue over, it is something that has led to a lot of division and a lot of disruption to the body of Christ, okay? but it need not. The doctrine of God's election, uh, according to one of my Bible dictionaries, refers to, and I quote, the gracious and free act of God by which he calls those who become part of his kingdom and special beneficiaries of his love and blessings. The concept of election is seen in the Bible in three different ways. Election sometimes refers to the choice of Israel and the church as a people for special service and privileges. Election may also refer to the choice of a specific individual to some office or to perform some special service. And still other passages of the Bible refer to the election of individuals to be children of God and heirs of eternal life. Election is basically the idea that God chose you apart from anything that you ever did. He chose you as an act of His grace alone. And you guys, the Bible clearly teaches this doctrine. Okay? In his opening to the letter of Ephesians, Paul speaks of how God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. You see, God chose us before He even created this world, long before we were ever born or even imagined in our parents' hearts. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul wrote of how God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But this wasn't just something Paul spoke of. Jesus spoke of this as well. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. This isn't just a New Testament doctrine either. We see evidence of it in the Old Testament as well. God chose Israel as a holy people to the Lord. Deuteronomy states, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all of the peoples. You see, God didn't choose Israel because they were special or more in number or greater than anyone else, just like he didn't choose us because of anything we did. His choosing was an act of his grace and his love. 
Now, while the Bible clearly teaches the doctrine of God's election, it also clearly teaches the responsibility of man. Though God has chosen us, we still have a responsibility to respond to God's calling. Each person is held personally responsible for his decision to trust or not to trust in Jesus Christ. Romans teaches us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He continues a couple verses later. He says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And so clearly we see that the Bible teaches that we have a responsibility to believe, a responsibility to call upon the Lord, and we will be held accountable to whether or not we believed and trusted in Christ. While both God's election and man's responsibility are clearly taught in the Bible, what we don't have found in the Bible, I believe, is how both can be true at the same time. And that's what's led to a lot of confusion and a lot of debate and a lot of division. It is something that is apparently incomprehensible to us in our finite minds. We look at these truths as being mutually exclusive from one another. Okay? We think it is either God who chooses us or we think it's us who chooses him. But both are actually true. How? I don't know exactly. Okay? All I know is that the word of God clearly teaches both. And so I'm going to believe and trust in both. To me, these are parallel truths that never seem to intersect, but in God's mind and in God's ways, these two paths do intersect. God has chosen us, and we have chosen to believe upon Him. Both are taught in the Bible. Both are true. Looking back to our text, we're going to move on to our next section, dealing with how the gospel came to those in Thessalonica. Read verse 5 with me. It says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. We'll stop right there. Here in verse 5, Paul speaks of the coming of the gospel to the Thessalonians, and he mentions four ways the gospel came to them. Note, with them. Note them with me. Number one, to begin with, Paul noted how the gospel came to them in word. Paul writes how the gospel did not come to them in word only, but words were definitely shared. Okay? Words and messages were proclaimed. You know, we often say that we should preach the gospel to those around us and to use words if necessary. And I understand the meaning of that phrase, that our lives, you know, the way that we conduct ourselves, it should speak volumes to the people around us. And I understand the idea that, you know, actions speak louder than words. But you guys, using words is good, right? Using words is encouraged. Romans states, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Paul concludes a few verses later, he says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so when Paul speaks of the gospel coming to them in word, He's speaking of his 
preaching the gospel to them in the synagogues and throughout the streets, proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the offer of forgiveness of sins to all who put their faith in him. And so words are encouraged, okay? Paul brought the gospel to them in word, but that wasn't all. The gospel also came in power. Now, the word power is used a couple different ways in the New Testament. It can be used to speak of the power of God. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus assured his disciples that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to him throughout the land, starting there in Jerusalem, then through to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel message itself is the power of God to salvation, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. You see, the gospel, it has the power to change minds, to change hearts, and to ultimately change lives. But the word power can also be used to speak of miracles and signs and wonders. It could be that Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, were empowered by God to work certain miracles as a way to validate their message as being from God as they went to the church in Thessalonica. Mark's gospel describes how Jesus' disciples went out and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. And so it could have been that the gospel simply came to them through these men that were empowered by God to be witnesses of Christ, or that it came to them in word and with accompanying miraculous signs, or, more than likely, it could be referring to both. Okay, That they not only were empowered by God to be witnesses to Christ, but empowered by God to do miracles through Christ as well. The gospel, it came to them in word, in power, and in the Holy Spirit. You guys, this is key. This is the most important, okay? For the gospel can be preached in word, the gospel can be preached in power, and still not produce any sort of fruit. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he was empowered by and filled with the Spirit of God. He did great wonders and signs among the people, according to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. He boldly preached the gospel message, and yet his hearers did not get saved. Far from it, in fact, if you know the account. When they heard him speaking of seeing the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped up their ears and they ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him to death. What was wrong? What was missing? Why didn't these people respond to faith in Stephen's powerful declaration of the gospel? It was because the Holy Spirit was not there drawing them to salvation. See, you can have the greatest presentation in the world. You can have accompanying signs and wonders. But if the Holy Spirit does not draw a man to the Lord, then there will be no conversion. The key to the success of Paul's ministry in bringing the gospel to the Thessalonians was the work of the Holy Spirit drawing them to the Lord. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, according to John chapter 16, verse 8, to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You see, without the Holy Spirit convicting a sinner and leading them to Christ, there's no way for a person to be saved. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding the Thessalonians was key to them ultimately coming to faith. 
Now, the last thing that Paul mentioned about how the gospel came to them was that it came in much assurance. The idea here is that it came with complete certainty or full conviction. When Paul and his companions came and shared the gospel with these people, they did so with great confidence in the gospel. These people believed wholeheartedly in the message that they were preaching. There was no doubt or uncertainty in their proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This describes the preacher who really believes what he preaches. Okay? And I am shocked and dismayed at times when I read of preachers and teachers of the gospel that don't truly believe in the word and the gospel message as described in the Bible. There are all sorts of preachers out there that are preaching something other than the gospel. They preach feel-good messages or talk about self-help and social programs. They preach a prosperity gospel that's twisted for their own well-being. And I fear that most of these people do so because they simply lack the conviction to, span, to stand upon the truth of God's word. This was not so with Paul and his companions, okay? They wholeheartedly declared the gospel message of Christ. They spoke of Jesus' death, his resurrection. They spoke of the need for repentance and turning from sin. They spoke of God's election. They spoke of his coming again. They spoke of God's wrath and judgment to come upon a Christ-rejecting world. They didn't shy away from the hard things, but were bold. They didn't shy away from declaring to them the truth because they actually believed in and were confident in the message of the gospel. You know, as I consider how the gospel came to this church in Thessalonica, how it came in word and in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance, I can't help but believe that that is what the church desperately needs today. We need more churches that will preach the word. Churches that will rely upon the power of God and look to the Spirit of God to work mightily through the gospel. A church that truly believes in and lives out the gospel message. That's what we need today, <laughs> is churches that are going to be like the Thessalonian church. Well, let's turn now to our next section, dealing with how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel. Take a look at verse 6. It says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. We're going to pause right there in verse 6. In verse 6, Paul describes how the gospel was responded to by the Thessalonians. And I'd like to once again note four things about their response of the gospel from this verse. Number one, we see that the Thessalonians responded to the gospel by becoming imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. I think it's very important for new believers to have an example that they can look to and see in real life. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were just that for this church. For most of the believers in Thessalonica, this was all new stuff. Most of them were Gentiles. They didn't have a foundation of monotheism and an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures to help guide them. The example of Paul and other spiritual mentors and leaders was critical to their reception of the gospel and their growth as believers. You know, we should never look to place all of our hope in man. We are all imperfect, and we all will blow it sometime or another. But that doesn't mean that we still can't be an example to others, right? We may be an imperfect example at some times, but hopefully we serve as an example that most can follow. That should be our goal, right? This was the goal and, and desire of Paul. 
On numerous occasions, he asked people to follow him as he followed the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, to the church in Corinth, he urged them, imitate me. Okay, he exhorted them to imitate him just as he also imitates Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. To the church in Philippi, he wrote, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who will so walk as you have us for a pattern. He encouraged Timothy not to despise his youth and to be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. The author of Hebrews tells us to remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. And so we see throughout the New Testament an exhortation to follow spiritual leaders that have gone before us, those that have been given to us as a pattern to follow, those we can look to imitate as they imitate Christ. And for the Thessalonians, that was Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They learned what it was like to be a Christian through their example. But we see that they didn't stop with just imitating their spiritual leaders. For Paul also writes how they responded to the gospel by becoming imitators of the Lord. You see, when a new believer first comes to faith, many of them don't know how to receive from the Lord. They don't have an understanding of God's word. They usually don't have an understanding of how to pray. They don't have an understanding of how God desires to speak to them. And, and so spiritual leaders are needed to help disciple them, to help train them up. But there comes a time, or at least there should come a time, where new believers start to grow and learn how to receive from the Lord themselves. They learn how to spend time in prayer, and they learn how to read the scriptures and how to apply them to their own lives. They learn how to commune with the Lord, to sit quietly before Him, to be still and to know the Lord. These are all spiritual disciplines that come as we continue to grow in the Lord. And so the growth of the Thessalonian believers' spiritual lives were evidenced by the fact that after spending time being imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that they eventually became imitators of the Lord himself. Jesus lived his life here on earth as an example for us to follow. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said to his disciples, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. John writes that he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You know, while it is great to have spiritual mentors and leaders Jesus is ultimately the best example to follow because he will never lead us astray and he will never let us down. The third way the Thessalonians responded to the gospel was that they received the word with much affliction. Okay, they responded to the gospel despite persecution. When we did the overview of the book last week, we noted how the church was first started and how some of the Jews who were not persuaded by Paul became envious of Paul and the growth of the church that they decided to get some evil men together from the marketplace and they created a mob, setting the city in an uproar. Because of this, Jason, who uh, was housing the disciples, or Paul and his companions, 
Jason and some of the other believers ended up being dragged to the rulers of the city and accused of turning the world upside down. They also tried to accuse them of acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar by claiming that there was another king besides Caesar speaking of Jesus Christ. Evidently, the persecution continued to pour forth after these people turned to faith in Jesus Christ. But the persecution did not deter them from responding to the gospel and living out their faith. Even in their suffering, they were being imitators of both Paul and the Lord. For Paul suffered a great many of pains and trials and persecutions and heartaches as a result of his faith and of his proclamation of the gospel. And Jesus himself said to his disciples, remember the word that I sent to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Okay? These were not fair-weather believers. Okay? These Thessalonians immediately felt persecution when they came to faith in Christ, but they didn't let that keep them from following the Lord. They persevered. They continued forth in their faith. The fourth and final thing to note regarding their response is that they responded to the gospel with joy of the Holy Spirit. How was it possible for this church to respond with joy while in the midst of great persecution? Well, it was because their joy was not based upon their circumstances, but upon their faith in Christ and their life with the Holy Spirit. These people had the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within them. When they came to faith, the Holy Spirit came and took residence within them, sealing them in their faith and guaranteeing their place in heaven with the Lord for all of eternity. Their sins had been forgiven and they were etern their eternal place in heaven had been secured. And when we realize the magnitude of eternity in comparison to this life here on earth, we come to realize that our lives here on earth are, as James described, that they are but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so we can experience all sorts of difficulties and shortcomings, and we can still remain with joy of the Holy Spirit because we know that the persecutions of this life, they're temporary. Okay? We're living for something that's eternal. Right? The church and the person that lives with the eternal in mind and in heart is able to look beyond these temporary afflictions and remain steadfast in joy, knowing that they will spend eternity with the Lord. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Right? Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Okay? These Thessalonians had an eternal perspective. They knew because of the Holy Spirit that was with them that they had eternity secure. Okay? And so these things they were going through, they were passing. They were temporary. It wasn't going to detour them. Let's take a look at verses 7 and 8 as we look to our next section dealing with the sharing of the gospel from the Thessalonians. Verse 7, it continues it's, uh, talking about how uh, they became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. 
There was a flow of progression in this church that Paul highlights for us here. The gospel came into them. It was received and responded to by them, and then it went out from them. Okay? And I want to note two ways the Thessalonians shared the gospel and the result it had. Number one, we see that the gospel went out from them as an example for all the other churches. As the church in Thessalonica received the gospel, they became imitators of Paul and the Lord, and despite the persecution they received, they became an example to all the other churches in the area of what it meant to be a believer and how to live with joy of the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul may have spent the least amount of time with the church in Thessalonica than any of the other churches in that area, but despite that fact, they became a model church for all of the other churches throughout the Grecian Peninsula, the church of Philippi, okay, the church in Berea, the church in Athens, the church in Corinth, they could all look to the Thessalonians and follow their example of living out the gospel. And what a beautiful thing it is to see when churches can look to one another as examples and be encouraged in their own faith and walks by what God is doing in and through other churches. You guys, we have to remember that we are not in a competition with other churches, okay? We are all on the same team, right? We are all part of the greater body of Christ. Each church is important, and it plays a part in the greater work of the Lord. We aren't in competition, you know, with the chapel or with Faith Baptist or with Rock Point Church, okay? We're all on the same team, all right? We can be encouraged by what we hear God is doing in and through other churches. You know, if we hear like, man, things are just going off at Faith Baptist and God's doing amazing things, we can say, awesome, praise the Lord, right? That's great. And some people might say, hey, I feel like God's calling me over to this church. Awesome, praise the Lord. If you feel like God's calling you there and you could be better used there, praise the Lord. We're not in competition. We're all on the same team. And when a church can look to other churches and say, I want to follow that example, I want to be excited about what God's doing in you. God will start to do amazing things in that church as well. We could be encouraged by what we hear God's doing in and through other churches. Hopefully we can be like the Thessalonian church and be a model to one another in some form or fashion. The second thing I want to point out is the magnitude of their reach to others, their outreach to others. Paul wrote how the word of the Lord had sounded forth from them and how their faith toward God had gone out so that they need not say anything. The phrase sounded forth carries with it the picture of a, a trumpet blasting or of a thunder booming. The word used in the Greek, it's the word exekeo. It's where we get our English word echo from. Okay? The idea being presented here is that the Thessalonians, they received the word of the Lord and then in turn, each person sounded it out all the more. Each one echoing out the gospel as it was given to them. The gospel rang out throughout the land, a, a reverberating echo of the voices of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, so much so that when these missionaries went out to other places, the word of what God was doing had already gone before them. They didn't have to say anything at all about the work in Thessalonica because everyone throughout the land had already heard. The gospel message went out exponentially as each person who received from Christ went and told others about the word of the Lord and their faith in God. 
For every one person Paul or Silas or Timothy spoke to, they turned around and reverberated. They echoed out their words to others who then shared with others and the word of the Lord and the word of their faith spread like wildfire. Remember that Thessalonica was home to a major seaport. Okay? They were a successful and popular city. There was a lot of commerce in this area, goods being shipped in and shipped out day by day. Well, the Thessalonian church, they became a major exporter of the gospel message. And I love the picture this creates, you guys. It wasn't just the spiritual leaders out there sharing God's word. It wasn't just Paul and Silas and Timothy, but everyone was involved in proclaiming the word of the Lord and sharing their faith. And this is how it ought to be in the church. You guys, we have all received the same message. Okay, We have all received the same spirit. The same Holy Spirit that lived in and empowered Paul, Silas, Timothy, and the Thessalonian church lives in and empowers us today. May we follow in the example of this church and sound forth the word of God and share our faith with the world around us. Well, let's turn to our final section of scripture. Verses 9 and 10, we'll look to the impact of the gospel and how the gospel, excuse me, and, and the impact it had upon the Thessalonians. Read with me the final two verses of the chapter. We'll look to wrap things up here. Verses 9 and 10 says, For they, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here in these final two verses, Paul brings things around full circle. Okay? He started off his letter in verses 2 and 3, thanking God for three things. Okay? And here he gives examples of those three things. Okay? Note them with me. As Paul and his travel companions went out, they would enter into a new place, and the people there would already be familiar with their story. They knew about how they were received in Thessalonica and how God was doing an amazing work in them and through them. They would hear about how the people in Thessalonica turned to God from idols. Now, this was a demonstration of their works of faith, right? Mentioned at the beginning of our text. The people of Thessalonica who believed were primarily Greeks. They were used to worshiping and praying to all sorts of different Greek gods. Their city was barely 50 miles from Mount Olympus, where the Greek gods were said to live and dwell. They had different gods for all sorts of different things. There were gods of war and gods of love and gods of fertility and gods of the hunt and gods of agriculture and gods of the sea and gods of the dead and gods of the weather, just to mention a few. Okay? When Paul went to Athens, he noticed how the city was given over to idols. Everywhere he looked, there was another god, another idol, another statue set up for people to worship. When he was invited to speak with the philosophers of the city at the Areopagus, he proclaimed, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with an inscription, with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Thessalonica, you guys, was just like Athens. Okay? The people there worshipped all sorts of gods that were nothing more than dead idols. 
The people in Thessalonica, they turned from their dead idols and they put their faith in the one true and living God. And this resulted in a lot of persecution, not only from the Jews who were not persuaded that we already mentioned, but also their fellow Greeks who feared their churning from the Greek gods would somehow invite the ire and the fury of the gods upon their city. But as we already noted, the persecution they encountered did nothing to keep them from their new faith in God. The next thing I want to note is how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This was a description of their labor of love. They now served the living and true God, the one and only God of the universe who was in control of all things. They simply didn't add Jesus as another one of their many gods, but they forsook all the other gods, and they yielded their lives completely and wholly to Jesus Christ alone. Once they received the gospel and they understood the love of God and how he demonstrated his love through his son, the only natural response was to surrender to him and to serve him wholeheartedly. And Paul beseeches us all to respond likewise. He wrote in Romans, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You see, the only reasonable thing to do in response to God's love for us is to completely surrender ourselves to Him and His service. Listen, we are all going to serve someone or something. And it is far better to serve the one and only true and living God who has the power to impact lives and the power to grant us entrance into heaven for all of eternity. The last thing that was spoken about the church in Thessalonica was how they waited for his son from heaven. This, of course, speaks of their patience of hope. Paul thanked God for them, uh, for this patience of hope back in verse 3. People all around heard, about how these people in Thessalonica were patiently waiting and expecting the return of God's Son from heaven, the same Son that God had raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, we'll talk more about Jesus' work of deliverance from the wrath to come as we continue our study of this book. The main thing that I just want to draw your attention to at this time is the hope they had, okay? the hope of Christ's return. It was something that defined them as a church, okay? Something that was part of their testimony and their story. When people talked about Thessalonica, they talked about them waiting for the Lord. People knew that they had turned from idols to God. They now served the one true God alone and how they waited expectantly for the return of God's Son from heaven. Those three things defined them as believers. This is what people spoke of when they spoke of the church in Thessalonica. They spoke of their faith, their love, and their hope. These three virtues are said to be the core of their Christian faith. They are said to be the three greatest evidences to our salvation in the Lord. And they are all founded upon Jesus Christ. The church in Thessalonica exercised saving faith in Christ in the past when they had believed the gospel. They were loving Christ in the present, and they were hoping for his return in the future. Their past, present, and future was all tied up in Jesus Christ. Their faith, hope, and love was all directed to Jesus. And the last thing that was spoken about the church in Thessalonica, or excuse me, they, these are all the same three things that ought to define us as a church, okay? That we would be a people of faith, a people of love, 
and a people of hope in Christ. And I'm reminded of what Paul said in his letter to the Corinthian church. He wrote, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Jesus said, The world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May we be a people of great faith. May we be a people that live for the hope of eternity. And most of all, may we be a people that are known for our love for one another. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.